Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered, and at the end, we'll look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at the Nevada Independent. Com. Joined today by two of our great Nevada indie reporters, Michelle Rendells and Jackie Valley. Say hello. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, guys. So this is, uh, as I was saying earlier, uh, candidate announcement week. It's that time of year, right? Uh, Labor Day has passed, and now they're all starting to ramp up. It, it seems natural to us. Most people listening are probably saying, what? There's a campaign going on? Uh, but uh, filing doesn't even open till March. So let's talk about some of these First, and there's been we're going to get to some topics that involve schools uh, that Jackie covered and some really interesting stuff uh, that Michelle covered uh, as well. But let's go through these candidates first, and let's start uh, with the most recent one, and that is the return of Susie Lee. Michelle, tell us about that. Yeah, so Susie Lee, if you remember, was um, you know in this uh, very crowded fourth congressional district primary last cycle. And that was the one where you had Ruben Kewin, you had Lucy Flores, and you had Susie Lee. So three pretty uh, top tier candidates. Uh, it was pretty, pretty fierce primary there. But uh, as we know, it ended up with a somewhat of a landslide for Ruben Kewin. Um, thanks to the Culinary Union, pretty thanks much. Thanks to the Culinary Union. He also had Harry Reid's endorsement, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, <laughs> fashed for him and everything. So um, so uh, Susie Lee came in third in that race behind uh, Ruben Kewin and Lucy Flores. She was 19 points behind uh, Kewin's percentage. And she had put a lot of money in that personally. She had put, uh, she loaned her campaign upwards of $650,000. You know, she's a philanthropist. She's an education advocate, very active in the community in these after school programs, um, homeless initiatives, things like that. Uh, But it was a tough primary. But, you know, she said, she was ready to get back in the game, and she ended up taking advice from, um, you know, it was, it was Harry Reid had had said, yeah, I think she's in the wrong, uh, running in the wrong district. She wanted to run in, in District 4 because that's where she lived and did a lot of her work, but she's, she's going to run this time in District 3, which is a little more affluent, um, you know, a little less diverse than, than CD4. Um, and a little swingier, pretty evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because uh, Susie Lee, uh, uh, we should tell people, uh, you don't have to live in the congressional district to run there. In fact, Reuben Kewin, when he won, did not live, said he was going to move there after after he, he won. Uh, and indeed he did. Uh, and, and a lot of people thought she was in the running in the wrong district, Susie Lee, as you mentioned. Harry Reid and others tried to get her out of that primary to run in CD3. She said, no, I'm staying. wonder if she regrets that now, considering they then won went all the way down to Jackie Rosen, who not only won, but is now a U.S. Senate uh, candidate. But what struck me about Susie Lee in that in that race, uh, uh, Michelle, was that she's very wealthy. Her family's very wealthy. Dan Lee is a casino executive, uh, done a lot of different uh, 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 um, casino projects around the country. They have a lot of money. They're, they're among the social elite of, of of the city, and yet she went to a lot of these Democratic meetings. She got there first. Uh, she she glad-handed with the activists, did the nitty-gritty uh, of politics. And my guess is she's probably learned a lot of lessons from that. Yeah, I think she, um, one of the things in, in our interview, she just wanted to be able to better communicate her message and who she was and her background. And, you know, I, I think it's hard to get beyond some of the the ads that she was facing in that last um 
primary when they're just trying to paint her as wealthy and out of touch. And, and she, you know, I think sees herself as I'm, I'm working in these communities every day and I'm, I'm working with the homeless. I'm working with, uh, you know, inner city kids in Title I schools. And so, yeah, I think she's she's trying to better articulate that in this this coming cycle because as you see I mean the Republican groups are already out and um, criticizing her and and the first thing they're saying is how many houses she owns and, and how wealthy she is and that that was an attack from last time the 17 houses or, or, or whatever it is in fact it's it's the sincerest form of flattery in politics to be attacked by a group like the like the National Republican Congressional Committee they've already sent out two press releases uh, one is the one that you, that you pointed out that said she's out of touch they sent out another one just today we're recording this on Friday after uh, we published a piece that you wrote about Susie Lee on the issues calling her a flip-flopper I believe on on, on single-payer health care right? Yeah, so she had, you know, in this candidate forum back in 2015, I believe it was, um, said she was a supporter of universal free health care. It was, uh, from what I can tell, it was this lightning round of questions where everyone would just have to say yes or no. Um, so at the time, she had said that she supports health care for all. And, and then in the interview I had with her this week, you know, she wasn't going to commit to the Bernie Sanders plan. And she said there's a lot of proposals out there, you know, I don't want to be put in kind of a box on this issue. Um, and of course, that proposal is somewhat dividing Democrats as well. And a lot of Democrats in, in more moderate districts, you know, that CD3 is a very moderate district, um, don't want to be attached to that proposal. So uh, last question on this, and we'll then move on to an, another uh, candidate announcement. Let's refresh people's memory. You mentioned this is a swingy district, as you did in the piece. It's relatively close in, 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 in registration. In fact, it's only been held. Uh, it, was, it was essentially drawn for a Republican state senator by the name of John Porter when it was first created. Only been held by Democrats twice. Dina Titus for one term, Jackie Rosen now uh, for one term. The Republicans uh, really see this as an opportunity for a pickup nationally. Uh, we know there's several Republican candidates who are running already, right? So, yes, you've got uh, State Senator Scott Hammond, you know, the Sometimes we call him the godfather of ESAs, uh, education savings accounts. Uh, you've also got Victoria Seaman, um, who's just really running a, you know, stridently conservative anti-tax platform and, uh, you know, challenging Scott Hammond on his how, how loyal are you to Trump, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's actually just a, a lot of candidates. You got Linda Tache, who's the um, an autism advocate. So, yeah, it's it's Republicans are jumping in in droves here, and, and Susie's one of the the really the only major Democratic candidate in that race at this point, and probably will be uh, again anointed by the powers that be. Something that she didn't have uh, last time. It's going to be an interesting race to watch. As a, as I said, it'll be nationally scrutinized, and we'll keep on top of it at the Nevada Independent. Jackie, last week. Uh, you talked to Kate Marshall, the former state treasurer, who said she was very seriously or very, very seriously <laughs> looking at lieutenant governor. Uh, this week we found out just how serious she is, right? Yeah, she uh, made good on her word. And by Wednesday morning, she had announced that she was jumping into the race for lieutenant governor. You know, it puts her as the, the first Democrat in that race facing a Republican 
Michael Roberson. The state Senate ma- minority <laughs> leader. Uh, Kate Marshall has wanted to get back into politics for, for a while since she lost uh, Congress in a special election against Mark Amaday uh, in, in 2011, I believe. I think I have the year right. Um, uh, and th- did she have to give any good reasons? I mean, the only reason anyone ever runs for lieutenant governor is because they want to be something else, I've generally found. And, and the, the office really doesn't even have as much power as even it used to, and it never really had much power. The, the governor essentially took away economic development, uh, uh, and, and now it's, you know, whatever the governor finds for you to do besides presiding over the Senate. Does she have any good reasons well, for running? We did talk about that because um, she acknowledged that most of the population or the general population probably has no idea what the lieutenant governor actually does. And, you know, she sort of used it as the conduit between the governor and the legislature it's trying to advance some of those policy decisions. Um, but she thinks, you know, in the, the past few years, what's happened to that position is in some ways given it more leeway to craft and make your own. Um, so I think she was intrigued by that part and thought it would be something that would be up her alley and she could work to advance her agenda. And the, the agenda she talked about was really making Nevada affordable for families. Um, so, you know, any topic we really touched on, she brought it back to that. Um, you know, education, for instance, she said she's not or she's not in favor of using public funds for ESA's education savings account, but she is in favor of school choice. Um, so when I kind of probed her on that, her vision of school choice is allowing parents, if the school in their neighborhood is failing, to pick a different one within the district and enroll your kid there. She thinks that'll um, force the district to improve the schools. Um, but you know, when I asked her, I was like, "Well, how how's, how do you do that? I mean, how do you really actually improve education?" and her response was, you know, I think we need to find other efficiencies in government. You know, I don't know that we need to write this blank check necessarily, but there are w- things that we're probably doing now that we don't need to be doing or, you know, ways we can just become more efficient, find that $3 million savings and move it to education or whatever the need may be. Find efficiencies in government, make the lieutenant governor's <laughs> job whatever you want to make it. Boy, what a cliche fest this sounds like. Plus, it doesn't sound like she knew she was talking to the Indies education uh, expert when she started talking uh, about all those things. Good good, good for you, Jack. I, I guess what I'm saying, and Michelle knows this too, with, uh, Mark Hutchison, uh, uh, you know, he didn't carry the governor's plan in the legislature. He essentially stands there and presides over the Senate and maybe conspires with the Republicans uh, to, to, to do some things. It's a very difficult job to run for and really say that you're going to have a platform. You can't uh, really uh, do that much. But the fact is that she's a name. She's run statewide uh, before. And she seemed enthusiastic, as Kate Marshall always does, right? Oh, yeah. She seems very eager <laughs> and uh, just chattered away like any topic I brought up. She would apologize for speaking too much on it. <laughs> Yeah, she does. She loves the game, and she, you know, she's a lawyer, and she uh, has has a lot of great experience. But she's also running against a very, very ambitious guy uh, in in Michael Roberson, who's essentially going to probably run as if there are a ticket, even there there isn't a ticket, uh, uh, with Adam Laxalt, the Attorney General, whom we expect to announce for governor uh, at, at some point. I don't suppose that we got a quote from Michael Roberson talking about uh, welcoming uh, Kate Marshall to the race, did we? No, we did not, John. <laughs> yeah, I did not think we. <laughs> I did not think we'd, we'd get that. That's going to be a fun race uh, to cover, uh, Jackie. Even though lieutenant governors are not that important a job, I think those two are both very aggressive, ambitious, smart politicians who have no fear about going uh, against each other. Yeah, and big personality big, for uh, maybe smaller unknown races. Exactly, exactly right. And both probably have higher ambitions than being uh, lieutenant governor. There's other, a couple other people who are 
uh, trying to move up. Uh, uh, we found out uh, a Michelle, one of them is an assemblyman and another is a state senator. Am I right? Yeah. And you're referring to secretary of state. I um, am. So, well, what we've got going here is is uh, Nelson Araujo says he's going to make a decision probably early next week about what he's going to mm. do. Now, he's, of course, been um, publicly mulling a bid for secretary of state. We also heard yesterday that Reno City Councilman Oscar Delgado, who was also a potential Democratic contender for that seat, has withdrawn himself from consideration. So uh, we also heard from sources yesterday that Nelson is indeed going to jump into the race next week. Nelson, of course, is a, a second-term assemblyman, uh, very young. I think he's actually younger than I am. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, no and, one's uh, younger than Indy staffers. I didn't <laughs> think that those people existed. He, you know, he's an immigrant. Um, he's active in the LGBT community. He is actually a Democratic National Committeeman for Nevada. So he's been kind of on this, um, you know, he's, he's out there in, in Democratic politics, a uh, fresh face, you know, for that race. But we've also got State Senator Pat Spearman, who is also still considering that race. She's been active on election issues uh, in the legislature and um, is uh, told me yesterday that she's not going to make her decision based on who's in the race or who's out of the race. So at least publicly, not not fearful of a potential primary. So we'll see how that shakes out. She said she's going to decide soon on whether this is the right thing. And and we'll see if um, if we have a primary in that race. Um, of course, Dem- or, uh, the incumbent is Republican Barbara Sagowski, and she's pretty enthusiastic about running her bid for re-election. She's got an event in October to formally kick off her campaign. So, um, so whoever the Democrat is, is going to be uh, probably facing off with the uh, Secretary Sigavsky. And we we, met, we did a story on this, and I believe you did the interview a while back. Uh, some people thought that uh, Secretary Sigavsky wasn't going to run again. She had announced uh, that she had breast cancer a few years ago. She apparently is doing very well, though, uh, and, and has been cancer-free now for a couple of years, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah. she, when you talked to her, is that right? Yeah, so she's in remission. She's got a lot of energy and seems very enthusiastic about about running for that second term. Uh, speaking of Pat Spearman in primary, since uh, I, unlike uh, Nelson I'm not uh, younger than uh, Michelle or Jackie, and I remember back far enough, Pat Spearman likes primaries. The way that she got into the state senate in the first place was running against a guy named John Lee, who was a state senator at the time and now happens to be the, the mayor of North Las Vegas. The names, like, never change in, in Nevada politics. They're, they're, they're always the same. One other state senator I wanted to mention who announced something this week without any fanfare and just essentially in a, I believe it was a Facebook posting, was the Senate Majority Leader, right? He just posted on Facebook that he's doing something we, we knew he was going to do for a long time, right? Yeah, he just tweeted that he's um, he had an open letter he posted online <laughs> that he's going to be uh, running for the Attorney General. Of course, we knew that uh, for a long time that he <laughs> He wanted that role. This is Aaron um, Ford, in case I didn't mention oh, his yeah, name. Oh, Aaron yeah. Ford. Yeah. <laughs> State Senate uh, Majority Leader, the Democrat. Uh, yeah, so he's um, he's in the race, and uh, we're also expecting um, Republican Wes Duncan has said that, you know, if Adam Laxalt jumps in, then he's going to jump in. He used to work for Laxalt. He just left Wes Duncan. He was one of his top aides, and he just left to go work for Mark Hutchison's room. Again, all the names are the same in, in, in Nevada. You don't have to memorize too many names. Yeah, <laughs> so we've got we've got Aaron Ford officially in the race, uh, expecting 
Wes Duncan will will get in um, when when Adam Laxalt gets in his governor's race. So uh, I think we're going to see a few more shoes drop in this. But the, but the tickets are starting to shape up, and I want everybody to know, listening to the podcast, that the, our reporters are going to be all over all these races. We're doing what we call on-the-record pieces for all of the candidates who announce, showing what their records are. We're going to have one coming uh, shortly on, on Senator Ford, and we'll do one on Attorney General Laxalt, and we, we've done, we're, we're going to do them for all the major races and maybe some of the minor ones, too, because my staff does not need to sleep. So uh, we, 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 we'll continue uh, covering all those. All right, let's get to some non-campaign news. Uh, Jackie, as always, you're all over what's going on um, uh, on, in the education beat here in, in Clark County. I was just talking before we got in there that uh, you were uh, uh, there till almost midnight uh, on, on Thursday with an incredibly long meeting about the issue that is facing Clark County. And there's a lot of emotional testimony, and that's what the, the budget deficit that they have, which is uh, about $60 million or so. And they voted to make some cuts last night. Let's talk about what they were. And, and the fact is that they're still not even close uh, to covering that deficit. Right. So, I mean, really, it's uh, you have to it's a new set of numbers each time there's a meeting because the the deficit is estimated to be between 50 or 60 million dollars, probably closer to 60 million dollars. But what the district has to do is probably cut closer to 80 million to actually realize enough savings to get to the 60 million. So I think there's been some confusion on behalf of the public of you know why that is so. Um, but essentially, they're already into the year spending money, so they have to cut more to save that actual amount. Before you go on, though, real quick, let me interrupt you. It's not just the public that's confused. It seems like the trustees at every yes. meeting, are they, they, they're confused by it too, right? Yeah, yeah. I would <laughs> say there's general confusion in the room and outside the room. <laughs> right, yeah. But, but, but it is it is hard to understand. It, it is, and that's yeah. why this blame game that's gone mm-hmm. on and was and the fingers pointed at, at Pat Skorkowski, the superintendent who announced his retirement last week. It's, it's difficult to understand and it's hard to pinpoint exactly why there's a deficit. Exactly. And so there's a lot of different factors at play. So basically what the time line as it exists now is um, last month they approved 43.2 million worth of cuts. Uh, last night they approved up to f- nearly 14 million worth of cuts. So that brings us to about 57 million. Um, so we'll probably see a third round of cuts at the end of September. But then what happens is in October they do what's called surplus. And so that's when you know, all the positions that have been identified for elimination, those people, um, they basically gather in a room and then they go through based on seniority and qualifications to try to sort those people out and reassign them if um, they have seniority over other staff members and the qualifications to take existing positions. So it's really hard to tell. In fact, almost impossible to say how many actual positions will be cut at this point because they have to do all this shifting in October. But basically, they're identifying positions and programs, uh, supplies, that type of thing to get rid of to hit that $80 million number. And then in October, they'll start the surplusing, reassign everyone. And then at that point, they'll start putting together the final amended budget and we'll see how it all shook out. But these cuts are affecting people, mm-hmm. right? They're affecting kids. They're, they're affecting teachers. They're affecting all yeah. of these schools. And I think uh, Jackie Live tweets all these uh, these these meetings, and you can follow her on uh, doing that. I think you tweeted at the beginning that if you, you wanted to come down to the meeting, don't don't bother. Essentially, all the seats were taken. There, yeah. there was a, there was a lot of interest in that meeting. It right? was. Uh, they even set up an overflow room for people. Um, so you had a whole bunch of principals there. You had parents. You had people from the Moapa Band of um, Pilots who were upset 
upset that this educational support center on their reservation has been shut down. Um, I think that's only loosely related to the cuts, but still nonetheless, you know, in light of the budget situation, that's probably not going to change right now. So anyway, just a whole varied group of people. Um, I thought one of the most touching moments was this father who came before the board and said he has a seven-year-old son with autism. His son's favorite part of the day is riding the bus to and from school, and right there in front of them, there's a whole bunch of cuts listed for bus drivers. Um, you know, but but he made a broader point in that, you know, I whether or not, like, it's my son's teacher cut or directly at his classroom, you know, it's still going to be felt in the district, and you kind of have to look at it through a broader lens for the community. People often move to a city based on education and wanting to do well for their families. And he said, you know, if you want families to stay here, if you want people to live here for 20 years, grow up here, die here, something's got to change and it has to be a fixed education. Yeah, it was a really poignant quote. And, and one of the great things about the, the way that the Jackie covers education is not just getting the numbers, but the real human beings affected uh, by it. And there, there were a lot of other people there, though, who mm -hmm. spoke up, right? And because pe the parents are naturally concerned about what, you know, they hear cuts, they see $80 million, uh, and they say, wait a second, I'm sending my kid off to school every day. So, you know, how many kids are going to be in the class? Are they going to be able to afford the basics, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, this is kind of what's happening right now. In the first round of cuts, there was a chunk um, that was being pulled from or that it's going to be taken from the school strategic budget. So essentially, the arbitration costs are being pushed to the schools and the schools are ha having to figure out how to retool that money to pay those people the higher salaries. So the schools are figuring out the cuts for that part. Um, in this latest round of cuts, it, it doesn't impact the school strategic budget budgets at all. But, you know, obviously there's going to be some sort of indirect effect if you're getting rid of support aides or, you know, custodians or that type of stuff. It's still going to be felt at some level. You know, fewer textbooks was on the list, for instance, um, general supplies. So, it, you know, while it may not be a teacher in that room, you know, it's, it's the ancillary services that are going to be affected. Real quickly, before we go back to a couple of uh, interesting stories that uh, Michelle uh, covered this week, there was also another story that came out that had to have everybody that you, that you wrote about, had ever, everybody <laughs> cringing uh, at the school district, and that was the, the ACT scores. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the ACT company uh, reduce, uh, released their report this week looking at scores for all all states, and Nevada was dead last this year. Um, and as people pointed out in the meeting, we can't even beat Mississippi. I, I don't know. It seems like Mississippi's gotten this <laughs> reputation for always being the worst, but yet somehow we've managed to fall below them. Uh, the national average for the ACT composite score is 21. We're sitting at 17.8 for our graduating seniors. Um, you know, as the school officials have pointed out, we did used to be at 21, um, but then the state implemented this new policy where all students before they graduate high school will take the ACT. You know, it's meant to sort of get them thinking about college, um, have it paid for them to take. Um, but obviously, there's a strong cohort of students who have no interest in going to college and may blow off the test. Um, so I think you're seeing some residual effects of that. But if you actually look at the numbers, there are a number of states, I think it's something like 17 or 18, 18 states total that test every student. And even among those, Nevada's score is still the lowest. So definitely lots of work to be done. There's a lot There's a lot of controversy, of course, about standardized tests. And if you look, I'm sure you, you saw this too. If you go on our Facebook page uh, or you look at that story, there's a lot of people e either saying, if they're not saying, oh, this is awful, what are we going to do? They're trying to make... And I, 
I won't necessarily say excuses, but explanations, including uh, what you said. And and uh, I think one thing we're going to try to do is try to parse some of this data in the future, look at how it is across Nevada, what's the difference mm -hmm. between Clark County and Washoe County. I saw some folks from Washoe County uh, doing what they usually do, which is say, oh, that's just Clark County dragging uh, ev everybody else uh, down. But 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 pe people uh, don't like standardized tests if we're not doing well, right? Right. And I, I mean, I think that's the battle is, you know, this is a test that the students aren't really being graded on. They just have to take it. So how do you really get them motivated and ready? I mean, it's sometimes not their fault. I mean, they may even be trying and still not be doing well. I talked to a parent who um, is very active and she's a teacher in the school district, too. She said she has a son in his senior year. And he scored just about average on the test, the national average. And, you know, she said, you know, he goes to a good school, like good family where we think we're involved, but maybe we haven't been involved quite enough to really get him up academically to the, the test is critical to college entrance. Yeah, and one, one last quick thing, just in case people are wondering, there's also some controversy going on in the school district about Pat Skorkowski mm -hmm. and, and the fact that he announced his retirement and, he's in, and it's in the middle of next year, it's supposed to take effect. Some people uh, are already pushing uh, for the school board to, to, to say, get out of here now, Pat, we want to put somebody else in. What's going on with that? Yeah, so the latest is uh, we had a Community Implementation Council meeting on Wednesday, and basically that's the group that's sort of overseeing this reorganization and the, the same day, the administrators union and professional and technical employees, they released a letter calling for the trustees to appoint an interim superintendent and get rid of Pat Skorkowski, you know, immediately. Uh, they're blaming it on the budget and his alleged fiscal mismanagement of it. Uh, so we get to the meeting. Um, the union folks are there. Um, the teachers union has made several call calls, by the way. Um, but right off the bat of the meeting, Glenn Christensen, who chairs the CIC, he's a former CFO of Station Casinos, he starts out by really coming to the defense of Pat Skorkowski and saying, you know, I just would like the trustees to ignore these calls. Let's continue on doing our business and let him finish it off. Um, for the most part, the CIC members echoed his sentiments. Um, Felicia Ortiz said something to the effect of, you know, he has 10 months. He's already trained. You know, why would you bring in someone else and try to get them up to speed only to hire someone new probably in June? Uh, so there's been this back and forth. Uh, and, and, you know, Vicki Courtney, who also is on CIC but is a key leader in the teachers union, she has a very tense relationship with Skarkowski. And so she was very vocal about how they need to just pull the plug and get rid of him. I don't think that's going to happen. I think you have a majority of trustees who are behind Pat Skorkowski. Obviously, you have trustee Kevin Child and Chris Garvey who have been critical lately, but I, I just don't think there's the will there to do anything. This whole thing seems crazy to me. Forget about Pat Skorkowski, who, who I know pretty well. And But I'm again, being much older than uh, you, you guys, I've been through like four or five superintendents. It's an impossible job. The school district is growing uh, so fast It's it, it, with the changing demographics. We underfund education in this state to blame all of this on the superintendent. Uh, it's just it's politics or it's a labor versus uh, management thing. All right, I got to get off my soapbox because we got to get Michelle back uh, in, in, involved in this. Uh, I want to talk about a few stories uh, with you, Michelle. You, you've been following what I think is this fascinating case of this uh, inmate who uh, wants to be executed. We haven't executed anybody here in Nevada in a long time. And so that's one aspect of the story. And the other aspect of the story is that we don't have the drugs uh, to do it. So what's the latest? He, was, he, was, uh, he made a public appearance this week. 
Yeah, so he had a, a an appearance on Monday. Uh, he came into the courtroom and they were talking about his case. So um, this is Scott Dozier. He's 46. He was convicted of, of killing two men kind of in the early uh, 2000s. Um, they do end up ha- they they do have a drug uh, lined up. They're gonna do this three drug cocktail that's not been used before. Um, one of the controversial elements of that is that they're gonna use fentanyl, which is probably better known for its role um, killing people by accidental overdose. And and this is one of the culprits of this opioid epidemic. Um, but they're gonna gonna that's gonna be the lethal drug. They're also going to use like a paralytic and um, and a kind of a Valium type drug. So, so they are able to procure those types of drugs. Um, still controversial. Uh, you know, groups like the ACLU are not happy about this combination. They're worried about uh, how it's going to work or not work, and uh, and they're demanding as well as um, the public defender who's on Scott Dozier's case. They just want more information about what what exactly the state is up to. How is this going to be carried out? Um, what order are these drugs going to be administered in? Uh, so there was a battle this week for the release of that information. Uh, right now, or as of as of Monday, it was really just between the attorneys. I've seen some misinformation. There was a lot of redactions. Um, but there's a desire to at least get more information uh, released to an expert witness, an anesthesiologist that could give some sort of opinion on, on this combination of drugs. And there's also... Um, perhaps going forward, going to be a, a fight to make them public records that we could look at. Um, so that's still an, an ongoing fight. As of right now, everything's on schedule for him to be executed on November 14th at 8 p.m. in Ely State Prison. The judge has asked him to come back, and she's actually asked him to write her a letter every week affirming that he still want to volunteer for this because, of course, he he could appeal he could get out of this but he's uh not wanting to at least at this point what's his demeanor like uh when, when you watch him does, does he seem like he's uh he's, he's still eager to do is that the word eager to, to to do this i don't know it seems weird eager to die but does he explain well why he wants to do it does he seem like he understands all of the things that you just talked about i think when you when you see him you see that's what a prisoner who is competent looks like. Um, I mean, he seems clear-minded. He's well-spoken, articulate, very matter-of-fact about his case. Um, I've heard people call him kind of like the model client for attorneys. So, you know, uh, he he sounds like he knows what he's getting into. Uh, He hasn't really gotten into why he wants to die, um, some of those kind of emotional details. Uh, But he you know, he's going to be moved to back to Ely State Prison. He was in high desert, so in southern Nevada. Um, going to move back to Ely where he feels like he can get more consistent. Um, he, he knows these guards and has relationships with them. And he wants to uh, – he says it's easier to access the phone when he's up in Ely. Uh, he can get it more consistently. They understand that he's, you know, going to be executed in two months. Um, and so he can make these final calls to his family and his friends. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, he's he seems like he's uh, he's all there mentally at least he's putting on a good uh, image of that. So, Is there any talk at all that uh, because of the issues that you brought up that the ACLU or somebody else could sue the state to try to stop the execution? I think anything is possible. You know, I think the fact that he's not fighting it, though, the fact that he has said 
that he doesn't care if it's painful, if, if he's having a miserable final two hours of his life, he's still wanting to go through with it. I think that dampens a lot of the opposition. It, it was brought up by the uh, the prosecutors, you know, that, that why, are, why are we pushing so hard in his defense if, if right. he himself is literally volunteering for this? But, you know, I think I think there's national implications. There's national groups that are watching this that, um, you know, are opposed to the death penalty. I know the Reno Gazette Journal did an interesting article as well about how the ethical issues that uh, the chief medical officer that designed this cocktail is facing. And, and there's, you know, groups of, of medical ethicists that say, you know, your involvement your, <laughs> with this is, is questionable. So so I think there's a lot of it's bigger than just this Scott Dozier case. There's a lot of uh, there's kind of a maybe a proxy war going on. Over yeah, it the goes back to the whole cruel and unusual punishment. And they could they, they could sue based on that if if, if they uh, wanted to. It's, it's actually a fascinating case. When was the last time we uh, executed somebody here in Nevada? 2006. 2006. It's been a long time. And this time. would be the first time the uh, brand new execution chamber in Ely would be used. That costs a lot of money too, right? <laughs> Almost a million dollars. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. That's a lot of money. Uh, for, why, why does it cost, I didn't even mean to get into this discussion, why did it cost a million dollars? Do we know? That sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? Well, you know, you have to buy the special bed where you strap someone in. You have to design the room so that there's adequate space for viewing, viewing because yeah. it has to be, you know, there has to be a certain number of witnesses and the media has to be allowed to go in there. You know, the, the room where they'll spend their last night, all of this stuff kind of has to be designed um, and, and built out at Ely. So let's talk about another law enforcement issue, about a story that the, you and uh, our colleague Megan Messerly wrote uh, last weekend after this last after we did the podcast, and that's about this rape kit backlog that we've been uh, writing about for a long, long time here and how they're trying to deal with it. Adam Laxalt, the attorney general, has made a big issue of this. It became an issue in Catherine Cortez Masto, the former AG's race uh, for the U.S. Senate. They want to do something about this backlog. I think there's thousands of rape kits, right? Uh, but they have staffing problems. Problems, which is making it difficult, right? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, as of early 2015, there were, I think it was almost 8,000 um, untested rape kits. Some of them were decades old. They're, this is like biological evidence that could be tested um, and evidence. Every in, time in I hear cases. a number like that, it's just insane, isn't it? And the due process issues and everything else is just crazy, right? Yeah. The thing is, they... Um, you know, it's just hard to find technicians that are trained. It's just like any other real skilled, like, laboratory job. There's just not not enough of them out there. Um, so really just everywhere they're kind of experiencing a shortage. And, you know, in some of these cases, well, first of all, they've got, they've got other cases to worry about uh, rather than testing old rape kits. I mean, they've... They've got way more um, times they need to test DNA on weapons and, and in homicides and burglary cases and all sorts of things like this. So there's a lot of other cases that may may take precedent um, over these these test kits. But of course, there's a push to 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 go through them to see if you can find a match and and prosecute uh, in some of these cold cases. The problem is that you know these these are hundreds of dollars, sometimes even fifteen hundred dollars a piece to to test one of these. Um, and you can't just test a whole bunch. I think I think every technician can test, you know, 70 a year or something like that. So, yeah, it's it's a slowdown. And, and what happens, there's been the legislature put three million dollars towards this effort to try to beef up um, staffing and and get some of these tested out of state. But there's not really at this point a long term uh, solution to prevent another buildup, uh, you know, when when the money dries up and then 
and then you're just going to be back at square one. So uh, there's a push to try to figure out what's a long-term solution so this this doesn't build up again. Yeah, it's just to me, it's always seemed like it's just a horrific problem, really just awful. Uh, it's a great story that you should go into NevadaIndependent.com and read the Megan and, and Michelle's uh, report on that. Real quickly, before we wrap up, uh, 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 Michelle, uh, our colleague uh, Riley Snyder, we forced him to work on his 25th birthday. Happy birthday, Riley. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to sing because uh, no one will ever listen to this podcast again. Uh, but but again, this this is like the never ending story of will the liquor distributors have a monopoly uh, on, on, on on distributing pot or will other uh, people uh, get let in? What's the latest? Yeah, we're like you know six months into this saga <laughs> at this point, uh, and and every juncture, you know, the liquor folks score a victory and then the pot folks score a victory. So uh, what happened today is the Supreme Court, um, basically, it was a, a victory for the liquor folks. Um, they said, don't, the ta Department of Taxation cannot license regular marijuana companies to go do this distribution. They didn't rule. It was just an injunction, correct? It was an injunction, yeah. And they're going to um, argue this case further in early October right here at UNLV. So... But basically, uh, for the meantime, the um, none of these normal marijuana companies can get these transportation licenses to move move pot around, and uh, and liquor distributors retain their exclusive uh, rights to get these licenses and do this work. I still think this is one of the great uh, ironic uh, Nevada political stories where these pot guys let the liquor guys come in to try to get them on board when they were running the campaign, and now suddenly they're saying, "Okay, you let us in. Now we're gonna now we're gonna do what you let us said we we're gonna do." And they're saying, "Wait a second, wait a second, not do it." It's just been a great story, and you've been doing a great job uh, of covering. All right, let's tell let's give people a little hint of what's coming up uh, in the indie. Jackie, what are you working on? I have two things in the works. Uh, one will be the on the record piece with Kate Marshall, looking at a variety of her policy stances, uh, which I think is a Definitely important, considering she was former state treasurer. And, and during the recession, during the recession, too. And so that's become an issue for her, I think. Right. So I'll have that sometime early next week. Um, and then I also talked to some folks from community health centers. Uh, they're waiting on pins and needles to see if Congress um, authorizes some grants to keep them going. Well, I mean, they, they probably wouldn't just shut down, but it would inhibit their operations and maybe leading to lead to some of the clinics closing. Are these the community health centers that Republicans always say that, that women can go to if yes. they shut down Planned Parenthood? Yes. Yes. So that's a bit, that's a huge story then if they if they get shut down. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably unlikely. Uh, it's I was told that it's usually a bipartisan type issue, but there's always that chance, especially in today's political climate. Absolutely. All right, Michelle, what are you working on? Well, today, uh, me and uh, associate editor Luce Gray from our Spanish page, we're actually in the middle of a tour right now. Uh, we're, we're checking out all the festivities for Mexican Independence Day weekend. Uh, it's also, you know, Independence Day for a couple other Latin American countries. Uh, this is obviously a big holiday here in Vegas. A lot of, if you, if you go down the strip, you see a lot of the, uh, the artists here from, uh, you know, the Spanish language music. So what we're going to do is, is bring, bring readers, uh, up close and personal with some of these traditions and the history. Um, it's especially timely now that, um, there was actually a, a an opinion poll release this week that showed that, uh, public opinion of the U.S. among Mexicans has plummeted dramatically within the past year. Thanks, so, President Trump. So I mean, we're yeah. going to see if that's playing out um, among the tourists that are coming here or 
the tourists that are not coming here. That sounds like a fantastic piece, and which I should mention, I hope people do go check out Luz's great work in general on the Spanish language page that uh, the Indy has. She does a lot of stuff, Facebook Live, she does, and she does a lot of stuff that we sometimes will translate and put on the on, on the English page, and eventually we're going to be doing a lot, a lot more of that when we figure out how to get done everything that we want to get done uh, at the Nevada Independent. Uh, Jackie and Michelle, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I really uh, appreciate it. We're out of time. Uh, we want to know what you think, though, of the podcast. So if you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at the nvindy.com. That's ideas at the nvindy.com. Check out our site. If you haven't already, the Nevada Independent com and rate us go on itunes and rate us subscribe we can also find us on google play we're gonna be on a plenty of platforms uh and i want to always as always thank our wonderful hosts here at kunv on the campus of unlv and of course many thanks to joey lovato our fantastic producer who makes us all sound podcast smooth listen to them at least two of the three always sound podcast smooth all right everybody thanks for listening i'm john ralston the editor of nevada independent and this has been Indie Matters. See you next week. Well, I realized, so they asked us like to update the bio, and in my bio it says I'm going to adopt a dog after the 2017 session. But there's no like end date. Like every time between like now and like the end of time is after the 2017 <laughs> session. So it's a really open window. But soon. Very soon.